Hey, what is up, nerds? Guess what I want to tell you about. Have you ever listened to the show and you thought to yourself, man, I want to wear what they're saying? Well, folks, we have that for you right now. That's right. All the content that you're hearing on the show and original content is located at the merch at nerdonomy.com. That's right. We have t-shirts. We have things that are made in the U.S. Support the Nerdonomy. Support the U.S. Just wear our stuff. Awesome. Sound check. Sound check. Check one, two. Check one, two. Checkerty doodle. Hey, Brian. Yes, sir. Wouldn't it be cool if somebody actually, I don't know, created a hip hop song about nerds on history? <laughs> That'd be really cool, actually. I wonder what that would sound like. Yeah, yeah, man. Come on, come on. Hey, yo, Andy. What? You know what my favorite subject in high school was? I don't know. History. Yeah, man. Yo, l- let me break it down for you real quick. Baby, baby, got around for the sound of scholars trying to spread the true meaning that knowledge is power. Great Julius ain't backstabbing satisfaction of truth. Shakespeare's silent films back to the future. First lived the present. She had a body described perfectly elegant, conquering minds by 29. Alexandria, as I remember, shoot was more than a dime, a new ton of hope, discovering gravity, whiz right past, bringing full strength, insanity, genocide, hope, peace, assassinating normality, nerd onomy, giving forth that nerd harmony. on history i'm brian moriarty and i am still eric brickmont how you doing sir <laughs> i am doing pretty good how you doing i'm exhausted from uh, work it's been a crazy week for oh me. hey i i know it man i am i am well aware of that but gosh what an eventful week yeah first no off, kidding first i mean we have a lot to talk about we do indeed tons to talk about in this episode before we go into all that of course listeners you just heard the uh, awesome awesome musical stylings of Tariq bryant and andy schramm who put together that little hip-hop mix and you know to be honest brian i'm not a huge hip-hop fan as you, neither am i but you it's, might have guessed, it's catchy but it is it's really good and uh Tariq's other music is fantastic you can find him on soundcloud if you search Tariq bryant and you know I think yeah. we'll just we'll, we'll put up a link maybe on the on the website maybe it'd be fun we could put a yeah uh, put the song up again if anybody wants to listen to it but um thank you so much Tariq and andy for putting that together hopefully uh there'll be a sequel maybe in the future and uh you should definitely check out uh, their music, it's fantastic. Yeah, hopefully. And of course, it doesn't hurt that they struck their egos by doing a song based on, on us. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. It's really, really fun. Yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah, it was great. Wow. Okay, well, another uh, order of business, of course, is uh, the Pope. If you folks are avid listeners, yeah, if which we hope you are. If you are living <laughs> under a rock, <laughs> or perhaps in a nuclear bunker, we have a Pope. Habemus Papam, as they would say. Which are delicious with nacho cheese, by the way. What are you talking about? Isn't that a potato dish? No, it means we have a pope in oh, Latin. Oh, I thought we yeah. were having food to celebrate. Yeah, Sorry. habemus, which is the first person plural of we, we have. Habemus is like habemos mm-hmm. in Spanish. Same conjugation, just different letter. Then papam. Papam is the Latin name for father. Yeah. So we have a father, we have a pope. We we have have, a, or as I call him, Big Daddy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, pope Francis. Not Pope Francis I. No. Because the only person who actually carried the first moniker was John Paul I, and he was trying to do that as a, as a point. He will only be Pope Francis I when there is a Pope Francis II. If there's a Pope Francis II. If II. there's a Pope Francis II. Because taking Francis as a name is pretty bold. Pretty bold yeah. move. Commonly misconceived, it was not for Francis Xavier, who was a known Jesuit priest, because, of course, he is the first Jesuit to become Pope. Right. It was for St. Francis of Assisi, who was in and of himself a remarkable man. He uh, was a very wealthy individual. He helped fight in the Crusades, um, rejected all of his wealth, lived a life of of austerity uh, and of deliberate poverty in service of the poor and in service of uh, nature, and was an adamant reformer within the church without causing any sort of 
rifts that at least led to like excommunications or things like that. Tremendous man, and that's why he's canonized, of course, in the church. He moved the church forward in a good way. And what an example for a pope to do, because we haven't had a pope who's taken the name of a saint in a long time. Yeah, Most of the popes have been taking names from previous popes. Um, to carry on the Pope's legacy, which, of course, were eventually derived, originally derived from saints. But um, I'm actually very excited about this Pope. He's been Pope less than a week, and he's um, already kind of shaking things up a little bit, showing I'm going to do things differently. I love the fact that he doesn't wear the red shoes. He wears his, his simple black shoes. Did you know that the Pope wears, wears red shoes at all? Uh, you know, I, I've maybe heard it in passing. I was always confused, though, because I didn't know if I was thinking that was real or if I was confusing that with Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. So uh, now yeah. I know that it's real. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, um, as part of the garb, um, the Pope is supposed to wear red shoes. And it's supposed to symbolize, I think, martyrdom, I believe. Yeah. As you no know, red tends to do in the church. But yeah, he is just wearing simple black shoes. He noticed when he went out to present the world, he was not wearing the Mosetta. Uh, right. That was almost every pope has worn. He didn't even wear the stole until he had to give the blessing, and then he took it off when he was done. He wanted to show that he is going to be a pope of humility. And uh, that's kind of something I think the church needs right now. So I sure hope so. Yeah. I sure it's. Uh, I hope it's not you know just wardrobe malfunction. Like, <laughs> oh my God, where did he put everything? Yeah. I cannot find anything. It's all gone. Where's yeah. the red shoes? I cannot find the yeah. red shoes. Though I do love that he's got a sense of humor too. Yeah. Because what is it you said when he was oh, when he addressed the audience? Well, yeah, he came out and he said something. And I'm paraphrasing this, of course, but he said something to the effect of, you know, my cardinal brothers have chosen uh, a new pope and. Uh, they've chosen someone very far away, but thankfully I'm here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a sense of humor. Yeah. Hey, maybe if we send him like some red Converse, he'd wear those. <laughs> maybe, maybe. With little with little you know crucifixes on them. That would be cool. That'd be pretty funny. But I think yeah. the thing I thought was hilarious was uh, that they were toasting him the night oh, of yeah. his election, and uh, they said to you, and he toasted them back, saying, "May God forgive you for what you have done." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that got a pretty good laugh. Yeah. <laughs> so. His humility is very inspiring, I will say. And, yeah, I heard uh, he watched a lot of Seinfeld um, <laughs> for years. And, you know, another extremely notable and important fact is this is the very first South American pope. First pope from the New World. Yeah. 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 Pretty, pretty, pretty huge. Pretty very huge. huge. I got to say, it definitely is an interesting move by the church. And I found it also interesting that it's recently come out that he was actually a very close second to Pope Benedict when he it's was... speculated, yeah. 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 I, I believe it's probably true. Yeah. Uh, well, apparently he gave a plea during Conclave in 2005 to not choose him. Yeah. He said, please don't choose me. Yeah. Um, and I guess he, when the, the calling is there, you uh, you have to answer, you yeah. know? Well, you know, I know it's been a bit of a Pope watch 2013 on this show for the past couple of episodes. <laughs> and, you know, it's not to say that we're, you know, slowly becoming more and more of a Catholic-only subject. We're not. We're, we're not, not at all. But this is a really good sign to show you, just show you that we are constantly observing history. Exactly. You know, and I put that on the Facebook page last week. But it's tr- truth. History is all around us. Yeah. And we are living it. This just happened to be a week where we saw, or the past month, really, where we've seen some unprecedented events that take place. And that's where we like to really put up the flags and say, yeah, this this is important. And, you know, I, I just, I find the, the Pope very fascinating, to be honest, because when you think about it, here is this single person who, in many regards, is ruler, if you will, of 2.1 billion people on the planet. 1. Ruler 2. in the sense, 1.2 billion. <laughs> yeah. I'm jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, here is this person who, ruler in the sense that he's their, their spiritual guide, yeah. their spiritual leader. And somebody, but he's treated like a king, though. He is. He's yeah. very regal in the way that the, the Pope, the office of Pope, yeah. is is presented and treated. And I find it just so interesting that it happens to take place all in Rome. Yeah, because uh, I think you would argue that the Pope is in many ways a remnant of the Roman Empire. Like, he is, like, the closest thing we have to the Emperor of Rome. I think so perfectly. And I yeah. feel like, obviously, Rome adopted Christianity as its official religion, and Constantine being the very first one to become Christian of the emperors of Rome, uh, which would lead to so much more. Mm-hmm. But uh, absolutely, I feel like this is a an offshoot, if you will, uh, a close cousin, perhaps. Yeah, which is interesting because the hierarchy of the church was, as we talked about in the Pope episode, was adopted to mimic the hierarchy of the Roman military to yeah. survive, right? So it seems kind of ironic that the leader of the church would be the closest symbol to the emperor. And Catholicism, in many ways, has dominated the globe. It has moved around globally and, and been assimilated by many different cultures, and and some not always by choice, 
No, is, right. That's true. The case with there the were forced conversions. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's true. Um, and the yeah. Spanish missionaries. You know, these are these are all situations where it was spread. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the Pope is, you know, a dictator by any means, but I'm just saying that it, it is an interesting parallel. Yeah. There are lots of traditions that I think have those parallels. I think, truth be told, the Church, and we'll we'll move on to the topic, I promise, uh, but the Church at its heart is now focused on the mission and less on the conquest. The mission, of course, is to help the poor, help carry the message of Christ to the world. Um, and what did he believe in? He believed in helping the poor and being good to, the, to those around you, showing compassion, showing love. Things I think we can all agree with, regardless of your religious persuasion. So, clearly, it's it's been working for them because they've been around for 2,000 years. And yeah, they've been around for a while. Yeah. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, they got, they got a good thing going. But really, I think, yeah. you know, this is, of course, a lead into our topic for the show today. And this is a, a topic that has been requested really since we started doing the show. Yeah, we've, <laughs> and we've shied away from it because we always thought it's like, uh, let's hold off because that seems like this such a safe answer to go with yeah. for the first answer. Um, I remember we were talking very early on in our episodes, do we want to do Rome? We are like, mm, let's wait on Rome. Let's do something else. Yeah, and I think we wanted to establish ourselves as being something unique and not just the same boring history podcast that you can find out there. Not that there are all boring. There's some pretty good ones that are out there. But uh, there are some that just kind of get stuck in that groove. Yeah. You know? Oh, and by the way, as of today, we're number five on iTunes when you do a search for nerds. We have oh, wow. number five podcast. Ooh. So Ooh, I just got chills at my spine. Yeah, you did. It happened to me when I found out earlier today as well. Um, and Nerds on Film, of course, is number 20. Awesome. That's, hey, moving up the ranks. Yeah, we're now both in the top 20 nerd podcasts. That's yeah, awesome. Exactly. Yeah. So Nerds on History is kind of like the loyal Roman general, and then Nerds on Film is kind of like its lieutenant. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's psychic Norman. Yeah. <laughs> but as is often the case, the lieutenant often kills yeah. and takes over for yeah. the general. So <laughs> the Roman uh, general. we got to watch out. We shall divide and conquer. And then Norman, <laughs> oh, yes, yes, we do. So I talk about movies, I do, but uh, I'd be pretty good to fight. <laughs> <laughs> I just oh, did your impression. <laughs> the impression okay. of character. That's okay. I've, I've established it now. I'll be charging you for that, by the way. <laughs> we'll talk uh, to my lawyer. So, But let's talk about Rome. Because yeah. Rome, it is a fascinating topic. And it is something that one might argue has been talked to death. But honestly, it is yeah. so fundamental and it's so important. And particularly the part of the world that, uh, that you and I live in, it is the foundation for much of what has become our government. Many of the laws that are in place in this country today. And many of the cultural traditions, not only in practice, but also the language you know, of everyone in the English language and many other languages that have assimilated. When we think of the Latin root, mm-hmm. right, that is such a common phrase. When we think of how many of the Romance languages, you know, English, French, and Spanish, and what have you, were all greatly influenced by Latin. Uh, and of course, this was the language of Rome. It was the base. And it's amazing to think that it all started with one city. And then it spanned out literally the majority of an, of an entire continent. Yeah, one city that was a swamp. <laughs> yeah, the, the the tribal lands of the Romans, the early Romans, was a a, a festering swampland. You know, what else, what else was a swamp? Disney World was a swamp, and like what happened to that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neither one worked out too well in the very very beginning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but look at the glory that that, that it inherited, <laughs> the which means that which means it's also doomed to eventually collapse from within. But what? <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to say that, that Walt Disney was in a sense the Augustus? Romulus? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, he was the Romulus. He was the Romulus, yeah. So we've yet to really see Augustus pop up in, in Disneyland. Yeah, not Disney, yet. Yeah. Not yet. Interesting. Yeah. It's be kind of funny. You see, you see Mickey walking and all of a sudden he gets swarmed by them and then like goof, <laughs> goof, goofy goofy just stabs him. <laughs> That's too goofy. <laughs> <laughs> We found the title for our episode. <laughs> oh, on the steps of Space Mountain. There you go. Yes. On the steps of Space Mountain. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's great. Uh, back to the topic. I Sorry. Here is this land that is really uninhabitable. I mean, they had to really work hard to make this what would eventually become one of the most glorious cities on Earth. And it was quite ingenious because very early on, I mean, they essentially just started draining the marshes. And that would eventually become the foundation of the Roman sewer system, which is what, something that we covered briefly on our, uh, on our episode on uh, the history of the bathroom. Uh, but it really made Rome what it was, was its plumbing. It allowed right. Rome to be built, and it was a, a city of stone that would eventually become this this wealthy city of marble. Right. And it was something that, to speak of that technological advancement, was really not seen from Western cultures at that time. No, it, it I mean, the Chinese were doing it, but I think the, even theirs came a little bit later. Yeah, but, you know, it, it was definitely something that was unique. And they took concrete and made cupcakes. <laughs> 
which is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. It's literally spinning, spinning straw into gold. Yeah. And of course, you know, there was a, a very famous myth surrounding the, the birth of Rome, which uh, I love because I'm a Star Trek fan. Of course, and, Romulus and Remus. Yeah, Romulus right. and Remus. Well, Romulus himself, right, was first king of Rome and where the name Rome comes from. Because Well, first mythical king of Rome, of first course. First myth, of course, yeah. yes. That's as the legend goes, of course. We're talking about a time period in and around 752 BCE is kind of what we're talking about, right? So this is when people essentially moved into Italy, the Latins, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually become the Romans. And the traditional date for the founding of the city, the mythical date, if you will, is 753 BCE. And this is, of course, after the battle between Romulus and Remus, who are brothers, who were raised by wolves, who fought together, and eventually Romulus, being the victor, would have found Rome and is thus for named after him. And that's why people don't live in, you know, Reem. <laughs> <laughs> It'd just be an awful place to live. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, the Star Trek tie-in, I have to mention. Oh, of course. The because, Romulans, of yeah. course. So of the course. Romulans in Star Trek, of course, are this offshoot of the Vulcans, right, who differed in their ideology and... And helps, uh, of course, in the, they're a warrior Right. They're very militaristic, people. right? Yeah. So they, they leave the Vulcans, who are much more peaceful, at a time when the Vulcans finally found peace, and they left and went off. And it's almost kind of like the division of the Roman Empire would eventually do. It, it did itself kind of break into two separate yeah. parts and come back together and break apart and go back and forth. And the Romulans then go off and do their own thing, but they have a, a whole other little... I guess it's like a moon or something to that effect that's in orbit around Romulus, and it's called Remus. And Remus is where the Remans live, and they're this further offshoot of the original Vulcan race who are the slave caste now, who are living total darkness and now have adapted to darkness after, you know, thousands of years. And uh, I just thought the Romulans were so cool. Yeah, well, I mean, Roddenberry's making that point on purpose, of course. Yeah. It wasn't like, I'm just going to choose the name Romulus because it sounds cool. It's yeah. because he was making a metaphor. And, you know, like the leader of the Romulan Senate, because they have a Senate. Yes, and of there's course. a praetor. There's right? a praetor. Right. And, uh, and then, of course, all of their military commanders of the highest rank are centurions. You mm-hmm. know? So it's it's very intended to be Roman. If and, you love Star Trek and you love history, you cannot lo- love the Romulans. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I just happen to be grouped into both of those. And for those of you listening at home, I believe that's like 10 points on the home game. Uh, if you weren't aware the actual home game exists, you can find the rules to it on our blog and I'm pretty sure you get points for what I just said. Yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, you got – there's several opportunities for, for points there. So go Team Eric. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but back to the point, right, what we're talking about here. Um, the actual historical Rome, not the, not the Roddenberry Rome. The city of Rome would then, of course, be the foundation for the monarchies of Rome mm-hmm. and the Etruscan kings. Etruscan kings, right, which, of course, the Etruscans were derived from the place where Tuscany would – develop its name so they're really not that far away they're they're in a a nearby land region which makes sense because this is a time where there was some maritime right but you're not talking about super long distance maritime travel i imagine it um so it would be makes sense to you try to branch out to where you where you can walk to where you can ride a horse to yeah or a quick trip up the coast exactly and this would of course lay the the foundation for rome's power and for rome's military tradition because the Romans, much like their Romulan counterparts, of course, were very much militaristic. They held this long-standing tradition of their military being very strong and being very powerful. And it would be something that the monarchies, of course, would attempt to control very closely under the leadership of a single individual. But many people would come to prominence to be known for their military prowess throughout all of Roman history, many of which would take that opportunity to do something with it. And eventually, it was the case that The Romans decided enough is enough. We don't want to be controlled by a single person. After a series of really awful tyrannical kings who, of course, this is all a bit more propaganda than perhaps actual historical fact, but the the historians of their time would write these horrible, terrible tales of the tyranny that would be caused by these individuals and their need to be overthrown. But what's interesting is that a dictator doesn't just replace these individuals, but a unique system of government, one of which the world really had never seen before. A level of cooperation, which totally blows my mind when you think about the the time period yeah. that we're talking about. Well, you have to wonder, though, because the Athenians had experimented with democracy, though they didn't have a, a fixed leader. There was just a council, right? Exactly. And they all voted. The fact that they decided to form a republic, right? And the word respublica, which is what makes the word republic, means, you know, it's our system, right? It's our government, um, is beautiful. And it's Interesting how it plants the seeds for the American Revolution 2,400 years later. Yeah. Because it mimics the, the allegory very well. A tyrannical king 
the people rise up against it, there's a war, and we earn our independence, and we establish our own government, which just so happened to mimic the parliament of the British a monarchy, but that's beside the point. <laughs> we want to stick with the allegory here. Yeah. The point is we, we were recycling people a lot faster. Yeah. We decided to go with an elected leader. Exactly. As opposed to an inherited monarch. And that's where the Roman Republic was so very unique. And its foundation in about 509 BC, again, this is the traditional take on it. This is what the Romans believed was their official date. When it exactly came to be, it was probably sometime between 534 and 509 BCE. So there was, yeah. a, there was a span of time when things were being worked out. It's not just they woke up and said, oh, I have this wonderful idea. I don't know why they're yeah. British all of a sudden, but yeah. But also unique too is, again, something we don't see in even republics to this day, is there was not one elected leader. There, there was two. There were two. There I were know. two. There was it was a diarchy in a weird way. I, yeah. Because you had the consul. Well, two consuls. Two consuls. One consul helped legislate with the Senate, basically, helped keep the Senate in line. And then the other consul ran the military, right? And so really you're talking about commander in chief and executive not being in one in one role, but two distinctly different roles. For a reason. Two consuls were never in Rome at the same time. One consul was out handling the ambitions of the empire, military interest, and then the other one was actually busy keeping the homeland in check. Yeah. So, and it was exactly that, a true system of checks and balances, which yeah. is, again, what our formation of our legislative government is really designed to do, right? Our legislative, our executive branches, they're all meant to check each other, make sure that everything is status quo. That's pretty incredible. They also broke off and had a separate role created specifically to deal with more of the religious matters, whereas many kings of the time were considered to be both. Are you referring to, to the pontiffs? I am. Which, of course, is ironic because that's the name that the Pope carries. His official name is he I is know. the Roman pontiff. <laughs> Which is why I mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> Only he's not the pontiff Maximus. Pontifex Maximus, actually. Thank you. Yes. Pontifex. Though that is the Pope's Twitter handle is Pontifex. Really? Yes. Yes. See people. See. Yeah. The parallels. I'm onto something. <laughs> yeah. There was a college of pontiffs in Rome, and it was basically a priestly caste. And if you were the Pontifex Maximus, you were the highest, highest priest. Highest priest. Yeah. Yeah. And it fits very closely, actually, to the papacy as a parallel, because you were the chief religious leader in the country, basically. And you found that it's quite incredible because this new Roman Senate realized its stability right away. And they understood the power that they really possess now. And that these individuals who were being limited to just a single year were now competing with one another, not in a civil war type situation, right? Not through battle, but through expanding Rome and expanding Rome's interests and going on trade missions, and going on excursions of the battlefield, and doing these things to gain a name for themselves that would get them elected. Only for one year, but it was enough to hold this aura over them that made them of the highest caste in Roman society. Now, this is the part where I don't know. How often was it for a consul to be re-elected, or was it just forbidden? I'm not exactly sure. I know that certainly during times of political strife, during times of, of hardship, during times of foreign invasion and they incursion. They would suspend that rule. Exactly. And yeah. that person, if they were if they were doing a good job, can continue doing a good job beyond just a single term. But I don't think it was terribly common, nor did people really want to be reelected to a second term uh, within their lifetime, just because you, so know, you don't want to be were, seen as a ruler. But these are also people who were coming from the higher class societies. Like, they were people who were had served in the military at one point, or whose parents had served in the military or that they were in the Senate at one point, or they are related to someone who's in the Senate. And yeah, so or they are of great scholarly... Uh, they are of great scholarship. Exactly, yeah. yes. And so as such, you find a, a very interesting class of people being put in charge to rule over Rome. And there was this kind of now blurring of class in Rome, uh, something that started out of the sense of equality, I really feel like, you know, that just about anyone, based on their, their merits, really, could eventually be elected council. You know how these people who have more or less of lower births who move up through the ranks and become these incredible military leaders who then gain the respect of their people and can lead their people. Uh, that kind of instilled an idea that anyone in Rome could be great and powerful. And eventually this would pass on even to slaves and former slaves who would go on to find great fortune and yeah. great power and wealth. Pretty incredible. Yeah. The thing I found was really very interesting is that even though the Senate had the ability to make laws... Mm -hmm. And the consul would more often not be okay with them. The consul, of course, did have the consular veto. Right. And veto in Italian, or in Latin in this case, means I reject. It's, again, parallel to the modern American republic that we live in today. 
I don't know if you know anything about this. Do you know if that was overruled at all? If there was any, any ability to overrule a consular video? Because it was done very rarely, I know. I'm not exactly sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if it took the, the vote of the Senate and another and the other consular to really to do it or what have you. Right. Uh, or, you know, I, I'm sure that, it, like again, it was a system of checks and balances. So it was there for in place for a reason. Uh, and there's a great scene in the Rome show from HBO that shows how cantankerous that it was for a, a consul to to execute the veto and it like you hear like all the senators like you know yelling sure. and banging on the you know whatever's nearby <laughs> well think about what it represents i mean it represents them really you know using their authority yeah and using it in such a way that is pretty shocking especially mm-hmm. if everyone is more or less trying to come to a consensus on if, something if you want to look at the modern parallel it'd be like the queen taking a bill from parliament and saying no yeah. Yeah. She has the power, but she hasn't executed it in almost 200 years. You know? Nor would she, because yeah. she wouldn't have her comfortable little living any longer. Yeah, ex- <laughs> Buckingham yeah. Palace would no longer be her home. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, the Roman Senate was paying for all the, you know, the extravagances of the, of the consulate as well. So, you and, know, and, there, there are some parallels there. And, and just to draw another contrast between what we think of as, you know, the ruling class and the commoners and what have you, and the blurred lines that this was shared in Rome at the time, was that, you know, marriage between the aristocrats and the commoners was allowed. Uh, in fact, it was put into law. It was, you know, a subject that they thought, well, how are we going to handle this? Well, why not? Let's let it happen. Yeah. And that's pretty progressive. Progressive, but also that's because this is before the philosophical mindset of the great chain of being, too. And that yeah. was a concept that didn't come come around until the Middle Ages, where you, everyone had their place in life and everyone had their own caste that they lived into and no one really looked beyond that. This is before that even existed. So, yeah, it's it's very progressive to us, but I mean, I guess in some cultures it wouldn't have been as big. It would have been a big deal for you to to intermarry or to socialize with different classes. But I mean, I'm just thinking, uh, for example, in ancient Egypt, you know, it was mm-hmm. far less common for a commoner to be married into a, a wealthy upper class family. Sometimes you had it happen through adoption. Sometimes you had it through, again, prowess on the battlefield or uh, through rising in particular religious sects and what have you. But most often that did not happen at all. Uh, it was very uncommon. A couple instances that are more well-known in the later p- part of Egypt's history in the New Kingdom, but for the most part, it was very unusual for something like that to happen. Yeah. Whereas in Rome, it was quite commonplace. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of things that were quite commonplace uh, <laughs> in Rome that we wouldn't think, think of today, too. Um, you know, like a slave had the ability to work to buy their own freedom. Right. And become a citizen at that point. Yeah, and do quite well for themselves. Yeah. And in fact, you said there was one point where they even rose to the top of the, oh, of the yeah. totem pole, if you will. Which we'll get to later. Now, I will say, though, just to, because we could do a whole episode just on Rome as a republic, but uh, that's not our focus for the episode. We're trying to do a more broad-spectrum history of Rome. Uh, but really, for the first 200 years, the Roman Republic thrives and begins to grow and expand. Mm-hmm. And Rome as a republic then begins to conquer large, large areas of land, mm-hmm. uh, more or less the, the areas surrounding the Mediterranean. And, of course, so you have this up and down the Levant, you have it in areas of North Africa, you have it along the Spanish coast and to France, you have it, uh, obviously, uh, Greece was one of the first areas to come under Roman rule. Rome really, in that sense, was an empire at that point, even though we don't really consider it an empire until we have Augustus declare himself Augustus, and the Roman Senate declare him more or less to be emperor. We don't see it as an empire in that sense, but it was. It yeah. really was. Well, the word empire, well, I think you said it came from imperator, yes. right? And what's, what does that word well, mean? Well, imperium is an empire, right? Is the is the land in which it's ruled over. And imperator is essentially the one who is in charge of that land that is being ruled over. Yeah. So in the strictest sense of the word, any country that has lands that don't really belong to them, whoever heads that country is technically an emperor of, of sorts. Well, in Rome, it was very specific the way it went down. You had the the military move in, they would conquer the lands, they would install a military governor, who would then be eventually replaced by a a council, uh, who was mimicking in many ways the powers of the Roman Senate and the councils who were elected there. And they would essentially at that point be assimilated into the empire. And it was the imperator, the Roman emperor eventually, who would be the supreme ruler of all of those people. Uh, At this point, it was still... The consuls. The consuls, yeah. consuls and, the, uh, and the Senate. Gotcha. And this was really the beginning of the downfall of the Roman Republic, because while the first 200 years were extremely prosperous and saw quite a bit of expansion, the next 200 years after that would really be a period where they were just trying to hold on, where yeah. they had conquered so much so quickly that now they had this momentous task in front of them. Yeah. And really, the, the job of switching out people to handle some of the most key and important administrative tasks of us as often as they were doing 
while it worked very well when Rome was small and really just a small province, now was becoming more and more difficult to control. And you found that there were more and more laws being passed, whereas we had these much more progressive ones early in the Roman Republic that were now being much more repressive. And they were focusing very much on this ruling class that was now being developed, on these individuals of great wealth and great power and great military prowess who are now being the smallest, smaller and smaller and smaller elite to rule Rome and to take over that uh, position as council. This problem they were dealing with is that they had such darn good military technology, too. They had a system for how their infantry operated that was unparalleled and so efficient and so deadly that it was just like, great, we'll we'll just do this work here. Let's just do it everywhere and see what happens. And it worked too well. Because, like, well, we have all this land now, what are we going to do with it? Yeah, I mean, at the height of Rome as a republic, nearly 30 million people were under its control. And this is 30 million people in the ancient world. In the ancient world. Which could very well have been, like, a quarter of the world's population at that point. I I don't know exactly what it would have been, but it would have been huge. Yeah, Yeah. it would have been a, a substantial portion. And you're talking about, then, by the decline of the Roman Republic, nearly 50 million people under the control of Rome. Right. Keep in mind, folks, the world population as of, like, the 1850s was 1 billion. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, it's impossible to really get an idea for how many people there were in the world at that time, but it was considerably less than... One billion. Yeah. So we're talking about a really sizable portion of the population being controlled. Yeah, and there's a reason why they say Rome ruled half the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it kind of did. And it ruled really its own world. Mm-hmm. Because to many of the cultures and people of that area, that was the only world they knew. Mm-hmm. And Rome was the supreme power that ruled over it. That's a very significant and imposing psychological state of mind. Uh, when you feel, when you think about it, the whole world was controlled by them in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, eventually you have this very serious decline, and you have the rise of warlords now coming uh, into the Roman Republic. And one of them, by the name of Sulla, was there when a young Julius Caesar was simply uh, a child. And Sulla was quite a brutal dictator. Uh, He had essentially taken over through conquest, wasn't wanting to let go of the power that he had claimed, but was fighting civil wars on all different fronts. So he actually conquered Rome. He did, and Julius Caesar himself got caught up uh, in it indirectly, involvement with his family, and eventually uh, was pardoned for uh, ill feelings that Sulla held towards members of his family. But he would later come back, now perhaps influenced in many ways by Sulla and his his, warlike dictatorship, and take Rome and free it only to seize it himself. And Julius Caesar is really an interesting person from history. Uh, We see the Caesar of Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. right? And that is the Caesar that many of us know, particularly you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But the actual Julius Caesar was a very interesting, very conflicted individual. Here he is, this, this child now growing up in a land ruled by a system that he was taught never to believe in. This very powerful, very vicious person in that sense. And he then leads a a military life at a young age, you know, joins with the Roman legion and quickly moves up in his uh, military prowess. And while the whole time is becoming quite a learned, quite knowledgeable individual, he had an excellent knowledge of law. He was a lawyer, in fact, a practicing lawyer. And he realized his potential on the battlefield would really be his way to gain strength. And while Sulla was eventually overthrown and Rome again was ruled by a republic, it was done so under very heated and very difficult times. And civil war continued to rage on and off, on and off, on and off for nearly 100 years. And it would really be Julius Caesar who was so incredible on the battlefield to use that power to gain an army so loyal to him that he could march on Rome and Rome would pretty much surrender to his power and his will. And he did it by invading the Gaul. He did this by maneuvering himself politically, putting himself in a position where he could be essentially given a very large province of the Roman Empire to look over, Roman Republic, if you will, to look over. And from there, he would just continually launch this invasion of Gaul. And there are approximations that he had defeated in his short time on the battlefield nearly 300 tribes in that area. And it's approximated that nearly 1 million people were killed in this campaign. I mean, a a brutal onslaught. Nearly a million more were brought back as slaves to Rome. In fact, much of its later Gaul population were the descendants of these slaves who had been brought back by Julius Caesar. And he is, uh, he's pretty incredible. I mean, he, he, he comes back and takes over the role as head priest 
he gets voted into this capacity. He serves as a year as counsel. He does his duty, right? He shows his ability to to play by the rules and then comes back with a, with an army. <laughs> and he comes back knowing now that he's kind of gained the hearts of the people and he's gained the hearts of his soldiers that he can make a, a push and make a move for Rome. And of uh, course, this would very much displease the Senate who was trying to reestablish and reaffirm a republic and they see this guy who has all this charm and has all this this charisma, and he's ruling Rome. He's not leading Rome. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> he had already gotten the support of the people. One thing I found amazing that in my research I had discovered is that Julius Caesar, while being very well liked initially by the, the Roman Senate and accepted into certain roles, was actually quite a poor man. He did not have much money to his name at all. But that didn't stop him from building auditoriums and arenas and holding some really elaborate uh, gladiatorial fights and wowing the people and literally just throwing money at them practically, money that he was all borrowing, hoping, just hoping that he would win the hearts of the people enough that when he made his push, he could eventually repay his debts. Hmm. That's some balls, (laughs) for lack of a better word. He had some huevos. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually, you know, that's exactly what he does, right? Because the the Senate isn't going to put up with this any longer, especially with him marching with his enormous army. So, you know, they demand that he gives up his role as military commander, and then he comes back and he accepts a punishment from the Senate. Uh, And this instead launches a civil war. And so now Julius Caesar, who had been so very opposed in his childhood to this idea of of a civil war and and a dictator, has now himself assumed that role. And he does so, um, of course, with the help of certain individuals, uh, very wealthy individuals in Egypt, which would eventually betray him and uh, fight against him in his attempt. I'm sorry, sorry, did you say the word Egypt? Oh, it's coming. It sure (laughs) is. Yes. Pompey. (laughs) Oh, good old Pompey. Pompey was a a rival. He was also a one-time ally with Julius Caesar as he moved up his ranks and tried to gain his fame and fortune. And it would be Pompey, in fact, who would build... Uh, the very auditorium on which the steps he would walk into on that very fateful day on the Ides of March, which was not too long ago, actually, from this recording. Well, I mean, thousands of years ago, but I mean, date-wise, it was just March 15th a little while ago. It was ironic that Julius Caesar, in fact, would die in front of the statue of this gentleman, this, this man, who was very wealthy and powerful, but who had sided against him and paid with his life. Uh, Pompey was one of those people that Julius had defeated. And Pompey, in his attempt to save his life, fled to Egypt. And this is where things get a little bit confusing. (laughs) So listeners at home, if you need to pause, gather yourself for a moment, please do continue listening. The foundation for the downfall of Julius Caesar was now laid. Okay, yes, he had the hearts of the people. Yes, he had the military. Yes, he was fighting a rather successful campaign against his rivals. But now one of them goes off to Egypt and just buggers everything up. Because Pompey fled to a land where, while not under the direct control of the Romans, was heavily influenced by Rome. And this was because of the famous Cleopatra, Cleopatra VII, and more so her father, Eleutes. Eleutes, and of course, for those of you who don't know, Cleopatra was not a full-born Egyptian in that sense. She was actually the descendants of Alexander the Great, the Macedonian king who, again, conquered much of the ancient world and conquered Egypt and was left in control after his vacuum, after the vacuum, power vacuum left in by his death by uh, Ptolemy, one of his most loyal generals. She was one of his descendants. And her father, who was not very well liked by the people and hated even more by his two eldest daughters, uh, Cleopatra VI and her sister Berenice, they deposed him. They kicked him out. And Cleopatra, just at the you know, young age, seven or eight, I think, had to flee with, uh, to Rome with her, with her father. And uh, it would be with Roman support that they would eventually come back, kill and behead Cleopatra. Actually, I should say, she died earlier uh, for unknown reasons. We think Berenice probably poisoned her. (laughs) But then came back and beheaded Berenice and took over again. Uh, And then he essentially laid down a line of succession where Cleopatra, who was now the eldest child, even though she was a woman and she had other brothers, was now in charge of the country. She ruled jointly. She would not be considered pharaoh. That she would be just be the queen. Correct. At that time, she wasn't yeah. taking on pharaonic titles. Yeah, because pharaoh had kind of almost fallen out of practice at this point. A little bit. Yeah, it was still yeah. being used, but it wasn't. Uh, it didn't really hold the same weight that it didn't did have previously. the same deification that it used to have. Yes, to a much lesser degree than yeah. it had in previous generations. So Ptolemy the Eleventh, the Lutus, then dies and leaves behind Ptolemy the Twelfth and Cleopatra. 
And then Ptolemy the 12th dies. So then she marries her other brother, Ptolemy the 13th. He's 10. <laughs> and for three years, so these Egyptians were just like, so this is Ptolemy the 12th and his brother Ptolemy the 13th. And, uh, and there over, was there, over the there is Ptolemy X squared. <laughs> uh, he's a cousin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so now Cleopatra's in, uh, ruling with her, her brother Ptolemy the 13th, who's a kid. And what do siblings do? Gosh, when my brother was 18 and I was 10. We used to fight all the time. <laughs> Only right. we didn't have the fate of an entire, you know, country right. under our control. And it goes as far as to say they would, they never consummated this marriage. It was a marriage no. name, and it was in title only. In title only, very much so. Yeah, thank and, God. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so the two of them fight, and the Roman general who had led his troops to assist Ptolemy XI, the Ludus, take back control of his country, uh, were left behind. Uh, this was now a Roman interest. This whole kingdom more or less was signed off in the will of Ptolemy the 11th to impart the Roman Senate. And so now while they weren't in direct control, they had a military presence there. And the now 13-year-old Ptolemy the 13th decided, "Hey, I've got these Roman generals and soldiers. Um I'm going to use them to kill my sister because I don't like her. She's a big poopy head, so I'm going to try and murder her." <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what he tries to do and Cleopatra has to flee for her life. What's incredible is while all this is going on, here's a little backstory I laid out, right? Here is everything happening with Julius Caesar and his civil war that he's fighting. This would be, I believe, as the hipster nerds would call it, epic. <laughs> yes, this is truly epic. This is truly epic, yeah. <laughs> Where are my Horman glasses? Uh, yes. I already got the fedora on. Yeah. Um, so now Pompey, who's fleeing from his unsuccessful campaign against Julius, comes to Egypt, a place where he thinks is a, a safe haven for wealthy Romans, uh, and is met by Ptolemy the Thirteenth, who decides, hmm, here's this guy this other really powerful guy doesn't like. You know I wanted to kill my sister? I'm going to kill you instead. And cuts off his head, right in front of his wife and, and child. Yeah, kind of messed up. Wow. So Julius Caesar, of course, pursues Pompey. He wants justice. And when he gets to the harbor at Alexandria, here's Ptolemy the Thirteenth, this kid, 13 years old, all dressed in royal regalia, being carried around. And he says, oh, I have a gift for you. And he brings him a basket. And in the basket is Pompey's head. And Julius Caesar is outraged. You would think, you know, as ruthless as happy. Caesar as was, yeah, he'd be happy. But what he didn't realize is that, you know, Pompey was council. Pompey was a member of the Roman, you know, elite. And he was beheaded. So he now was, he wants revenge. Yeah. Oh, he's furious. He says, you know, how dare you treat a member of Rome in this fashion. Yeah. And certainly, yes, he wanted Pompey to bow to him, but he didn't want him dead. In fact, Pompey was you know, betrothed to Julius's only daughter, Julia. And so now here's this horrible situation that Julius Caesar has to clean up. And what does Cleopatra do? She's like, oh, sweet. I can go in there now and kick out my stupid little brother and have so him So she drown. sleeps with Julius Caesar. <laughs> There's this very famous scene, right, yeah. uh, in which Cleopatra is meant to have been smuggled into Julius Caesar, who was a guest at the compound. In the basket, now. yeah. In the basket with the rugs and what have you, and she's all rolled out, and then out comes Elizabeth Taylor, right? <laughs> That's history, isn't it? However she got into the, temp into the royal palace, it doesn't matter. She found her meeting with Julius Caesar, and he was absolutely enamored. And having seen the sculptures of Cleopatra the Seventh, I can't blame him because <laughs> <laughs> she was pretty. She was one hot woman, I gotta say. Well, I don't know. Many scholars believe that she probably wasn't the supermodel that uh, many of the movies had made her out to be. The images that you see in those statues, remember, are highly stylized under the ancient Egyptians' sense of perfection. Okay, fine. So she must have a very charming personality then. Yes. <laughs> Regardless, I'm sure she was a beautiful woman. Um, she may not have been, you know, Elizabeth Taylor in her prime, but I'm sure she was beautiful. And more importantly, she was intelligent. She had this way about her that Julius Caesar was not accustomed to seeing. While women were, in many ways, more respected in Rome than they were in other parts of the ancient world, they were not given the same type of education that Cleopatra had. And so the two of them form a relationship. Yeah, because uh, she's smart and Julius isn't used to that. So, yeah. so yeah. He, he loves her. Absolutely so. And of course, Ptolemy the 13th is extremely angry. <laughs> <laughs> he's being a fussy little 13-year-old. He's being a fussy little boy. And he's extremely upset, and he does the stupidest thing he possibly can, and he uh, he declares war on Julius Caesar. <laughs> oh, you dumb king. I don't care. 
I'm going to war against you. You take your Roman legion. Come on. And they promptly kick his ass. <laughs> um, to which he is then drowned in the Nile River. Oh, shit. Yeah, sorry, little guy. <laughs> sorry. Sean, please bleep that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was, just wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Just like, oh, yeah, you lose. So how, how are you going to do it? I'm just going to stick your head in this <laughs> river and just kind of hold it there. Yeah. Don't worry. Just yeah, In just... front of all your people, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of Ptolemy the 13th. And so now Cleopatra, with child at this point, oh, because... Gee, uh, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. You know, didn't exactly have the greatest of contraceptive back then. The Romans <laughs> did, though, but unfortunately they rendered that plant extinct. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and clearly Julius Caesar wasn't using yeah, it. Yeah, there was a... For those who don't know, there was a plant that the Romans would use. They'd make it into a tea. And it was a very, very powerful contraceptive to prevent pregnancy. I uh, want to know how that worked. Well, we would love to know, too, but... It's in the only reason we know about it is because it's in relics of documentation from that period that it was a known, I guess, medication. Maybe they had found the ancient formula from Mountain Dew. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was so popular, and people were just having so much sex with because of this that they wiped it off the face of the earth. It's kind of funny and sad at the same time. <laughs> I can just see this 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 mass of people going into Roman drugstores and. Uh, <laughs> asking for oh you know we're run out uh when when is it uh, expected to come back in well it's kind of back ordered for eternity yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry we're trying to grow that. some more but it's just it's having the hardest time yeah we'll put you on the wait list <laughs> yeah they're like they're, they were using all of it they weren't thinking to grow some more yeah so go figure <laughs> well anyhow yeah <laughs> so here now uh is cleopatra pregnant with julius caesar's child and julius caesar now deciding not to annex egypt he could have he wanted to. He could have taken it over. But no, he instead, you know, first he backed Cleopatra on her rightful claim, wanted to mediate this peace. The peace was broken. And again, given another opportunity, rejects it. Now hands it right back to Cleopatra and goes back off to Rome. Pretty He, crazy. he could have been king. He could have been king. And that was the big fear, wasn't it? And this is Julius Caesar's biggest mistake. He met with a very powerful, very smart woman who was going to take an opportunity to go ahead and take back her kingdom at all cost. Oh, by the way, she also then married her uh, young brother, Ptolemy the Fourteenth. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm absolutely not kidding. So what was he, nine? <laughs> I don't know. He was really young. Jesus. Uh, he may have been about eight or nine, yeah. Uh, I'm serious. It's pretty crazy. This is sure. like soap operas can't be this. Like, this is too good. This is... Uh. I believe the ancient Egyptians call this Gone with the Shimu. <laughs> the egyptian god of wind by the way um <laughs> anyhow so now you have this crazy situation where julius caesar has has left poor cleopatra who's now with child who's trying to pick up the pieces of her of her shattered country and he goes back off to continue fighting his civil war and cleopatra lets him do it she gives him his space she lets him go and fight a war you know, it's it's great. They had a talk, a conversation. I'm sure it went well. But she, at the whole time, was then more or less trying to support him from afar. And there was a lot, I mean a lot, going on at this time. So I'm going to s- just skip some of that. And let's just jump ahead a little bit to Julius Caesar winning the war. He's now installed himself as the ruler of Rome. As a dictator. As a dictator. But he does it in a very interesting fashion. He does a lot of show. Because remember, this is a showman, right? This is a guy who likes to put on a lot of gladiatorial games and what have you. And he assembles, you know, a very large group of people to see him more or less be crowned. And he's kind of testing the waters because he is about to have Marcus Antonius, his loyal general, place the oak leaf crown upon his head in front of this group of people where it is essentially his coronation ceremony. And as they go to place the crown upon his head, the crowd breaks out in anger and starts yelling and swearing and very upset. He then holds up a hand to prevent the crown from being placed upon his head. And so Marcus Antonius then retracts the crown and the crowd erupts in joy and and cheering. So then Antonius tries putting the crown on again. (laughs) And again, the crowd erupts in this anger. And so it's pretty obvious at this point that Julius Caesar is not going to wear the crown but it's not going to stop him from wearing other royal regalia if you will so he still becomes this very interesting individual and i'm almost kind of wonder what would have happened if the crowd that second time decided okay you can wear the crown he would have been the first emperor of rome yeah yeah and i think that's what would have really happened and i think he was very cleverly testing the waters but in a really bold way again this guy had balls well, he was the guy who coined the phrase right veni vidi I came, I saw, I conquered. Yeah, you know, exactly. He just did his thing. So where does Cleopatra come back into all of this? Well, 
After Rome was reestablished and peaceful again, she decides to take a trip. So her and her now young son, Caesarion, named after Julius Caesar, of course, which literally means little Caesar. And of course, he didn't kind of, he didn't really tell anybody about that, did he? Not really. Nope. <laughs> nope. Again, soap opera. Yeah. So soap opera. And again, Caesarion, the founder of Little Caesar's Pizza, uh, which would have a reemergence few thousand years there later. There you go. He was the Little Caesar. There you well, go. Well, it just didn't catch on because they didn't have the right cheese. Well, they, they said the little, originally little, little Caesarian, and the, that just didn't quite have the right ring to it. I yeah. think when you associate that with pizza, it just doesn't make sense. So, <laughs> uh, so Little Caesar, though, that was with the money. Right? <sighs> they missed it. Yeah. They well, missed it. Yeah. Missed the opportunity. So, she then <laughs> takes her young son, her now young husband and brother, Ptolemy Fourteenth, and they go for a trip to Rome. And they go to, on vacation, and they are met with the greatest of fanfare. Uh, in fact, Julius Caesar throws a parade for Cleopatra. And what does the Roman Senate see? They see their newly installed dictator leading a monarch through the streets, holding in her hands the child of Julius Caesar. And of course, there were rumors mm. going about, right? Nobody knew exactly what was going on. Well, they knew yeah. now. <laughs> oh, yes, they did. During all of this... <laughs> There was so much plotting going on. There was of course. so much, how are we going to kill him? When are we going to do it? How are we going to make it important? Uh, how are we going to make a message out of this? And it was difficult because Julius Caesar was not a fool. He knew that people were plotting against him, and he had very, very strong and strict security. Much of it was led by Marcus Antonius. And so it took a lot of planning to get the two of them apart. So on that fateful day, you know, March 14th, 44 BCE, Marcus Antonius is now just starting to hear some some rumors and murmurs about what's going on, and he attempts as many opportunities as he can in the morning of the 15th to get to Julius Caesar, uh, who was supposed to be meeting within the Curia, which, of course, was the building in which... The Roman you know, name for court. Which, exact, thank you. Yes. In which the, the Roman Senate would meet. And he's trying to race there to get there before the meeting. And he's being stopped at every opportunity by all these different conspirators. And the, the Roman senators all held a blade, concealed within their robes, very nervously awaiting Julius Caesar's arrival. And as he enters the Curia, which, by the way, was built by Pompey, he is right in front of the statue of Pompey when the Roman senators de-sleeve their knives and each stab him once. And, of course, the uh, conspirator behind all of this is the famous Brutus. And Cassius. And if Cassius. You, if you follow the Shakespeare play. But Brutus was really the mastermind behind all of this. He was the one who really led for this to happen, organized it, and lay the final knife blow into Caesar. And this was Julius Caesar's end, but the beginning of his legacy, which is incredible, because while the Roman Senate believed that what they were doing was restoring the power of the Senate, they would actually seal the fate of an emperor now far more than would have ever been done if Julius Caesar had been left alive. They could have let Caesar live. They could have let him run his course, run his popularity. And they could have done it in a way in which, when he was least popular, killed him and restored the Senate. But this final insult of Cleopatra being brought to Rome was too much for them now, and they had to take the opportunity. And so Cleopatra flees, her and her child. Because they wanted to kill her and the child, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was to be no cesarean. They didn't want him around. That led to all sorts of complications. And to assume that there would be a, a throne for him to inherit, right? Exactly. So Cleopatra buggers off back to Egypt. And now we have Marcus Antonius, this incredible figure from history as well. Mark this, Antony, of course, yes. Mark Antony. Not Mark Anthony, who married J-Lo, but uh, Marcus Antonius. Yes. I prefer... I think Marcus Latin. Antonius is much... Is much more impressive. Yeah, it's considerably more badass. Yeah. Yeah. He's now left with this power vacuum, and during the eulogy that he delivers for Julius Caesar upon his pyre, uh, he makes this case, this incredible case, to go ahead and um, sniff out all the conspirators and have them all killed. And this is almost similar to the uh, famous Friends Romans countryman Lend Me Your Ears speech from Julius Caesar. Yeah. And he talks about Brutus being an honorable man, and how he keeps talking about Caesar did this, 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 Senate does this, 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 but Brutus is the honorable man, basically mocking him and saying, really, Caesar was the honorable man. You guys are the swine who conspired against him. Yeah. And he makes that appeal that he would avenge, right? He would avenge the people, uh, or he would avenge Caesar's death, basically. And while some of these words that pass down to us from history are highly motivated by uh, other means, of course, it's been been magnified, and it's been theatricalized quite a bit 
But, but regardless of the actual words spoken at the time, it was obvious that this was a stirring moment. And uh, the Roman people now delighted in the idea of uh, many of the members of the Senate being killed. And so they were. <laughs> <laughs> and instead now, you had two very powerful figures come to head. One of them was Marcus Antonius, a loyal general to Julius Caesar, his left-hand man, quite literally. And then you also have Octavian. Caesar's nephew. Caesar's nephew. Octavian was quite interesting because, again, here was this person who was very, very young while all this was going on. He uh, was trying to, again, rise in the ranks of the military, much like Julius Caesar had done. But he really wasn't prepared for what was about to befall him, which was a chance to rule Rome. And he does so with Antonius. Uh, They form an alliance. They attempt to rule Rome together as consuls. Okay, so they they continue to maintain this uh, illusion that the of Senate a republic. Is, yeah, yeah, of a republic, and that the Senate is in control. And Antonius would not only carry on to secure his other places and battlefields for a few more years to come, but he would then eventually want to talk to Cleopatra. He wanted to know what was her role. He wanted to know where were her loyalties, and he would travel to Egypt to do so. And much in the same way that Julius Caesar became very obsessed with Cleopatra. Antonius now is absolutely delighted by her. Because keep in mind, Cleopatra was 19 years old when she met up with uh, Julius Caesar, who was, I believe, well into his 40s at that time. So there's quite a bit of an age difference. Marcus Antonius and her, a lot younger, (laughs) a lot more compatible, right? They had a little bit more in common. And the stories of the two of them in this winter that they spend together is really interesting. We find a kind of playful Marcus Antonius now, who him and Cleopatra go out into the streets of Alexandria and play tricks on all of the common people, all the local (laughs) people. And all of this kind of fun and love that these two had for each other. And of course, it would result in offspring, (laughs) as it does. Twins, in fact. Who, Marcus Antonius, now having to go off and secure more of Rome for himself and for the stability of the empire, would then leave Cleopatra for four years. So he comes, he has a nice little romp in the hay, and then he leaves. Kind of a jerk. But, again, Cleopatra, she knew the opportunity that she had here, and so she was pissed. There are historical records to understand this fact. She, she was not happy. Uh, but she gives Antonius another chance. And yeah, it, it is shown that she sent uh, a courier to the wall of his house and scribbled markings all up and down <laughs> it. Uh, ancient toilet paper made from papyrus yes. was draped upon yeah. the uh, olive trees in front of <laughs> and, his house. And they did... A thumbs down. They scratched the thumbs down symbol. Uh, <laughs> that's actually that's actually a myth. But yeah, yes. no, 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 no. But it's the Roman word symbol for dislike, right? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to make a Facebook reference here. Oh, sorry, Come sorry. Oh, so, oh, 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 right, 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 right. Wall I, and sorry, because <laughs> if I say timeline, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of hate mail going on, probably. But she eventually sends this plea to him: "Please return. Please return to me. You have two beautiful children. I miss you." And he, he's touched by this. Of course, he had also gone off and married Octavian's sister, uh, known Which as Octavia. she was betrothed to originally, right? Hmm? He was betrothed to her originally, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Octavia Minor. Yeah. Uh, what a horrible name. <laughs> such The Romans had such specific <laughs> names, too. So you know your older sister, Octavia? Yes. Well, you're also going to be named Octavia, but you're a bit shorter and younger, so we're going to call you Octavia Minor. Very well. <laughs> um, so he goes off and he meets up with Cleopatra again. And the two of them continue their relationship, and he decides, you know what, this is going to be my home. And maybe he had in his mind that he was much like Alexander the Great. You know, here was this great conqueror and ruler. He had conquered Egypt, in a sense, by conquering the heart of its ruler. And now he could set himself up as pharaoh. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. Uh, He was married to Cleopatra, and he was essentially declared pharaoh in that sense. They would have another child together, bringing their children to three, one with Julius Caesar, And now she has this opportunity to, again, extend her power and her rule. And they start declaring that Roman land, land that Antony had conquered, would become land of his children. Oops. Yeah. Big ups. Because the Roman Senate very much wanted to believe still that they were in some way still in power. And now he's taking the land that was theirs and declaring it to be his children's. Declaring it to be Egypt, basically. Exactly. And this was the final insult. Octavian was furious. Octavian had finally gained enough control to more or less have absolute control of Rome, of the provinces that he dominated over, and he led his forces against Alexander. And he did so in a series of sweeping battles that would consummate his 
final rule as ruler of, of Rome. And this, of course, would end with the Battle of Actium, uh, one of the most famous naval battles of all history, in which the naval forces led by the Egyptians, which, by the way, not very good maritime sailors. Awesome on the river, not very good maritime sailors. They were at a severe disadvantage to the extremely experienced Roman legions. And they put up a good fight, but ultimately it wasn't enough. And when the tides of battle began to turn against them, uh, it is believed that Cleopatra then signaled a retreat. And Antony, knowing that he would be, of course, completely outnumbered now, uh, followed in suit. And they went off back to Egypt, pursued very closely by Octavian's forces. I mean, in some cases, just hours away from from being uh, within reach of them. And so upon reaching Alexandria, again, another battle ensues. Cleopatra locks herself and her children in her royal palace, and Antony is now leading his forces upon the battlefield. And the battle does not go well at all. And the Romans who are being led by Antony realize this almost immediately. You know, they were demoralized and beaten and humiliated first at Actium, and now just a short time later, you know, a few days later, they were again being defeated. So they defect, and they go right over to Octavian's side, and they leave Antony more or less on the battlefield completely defenseless, to which he decides to take a sword and plunge it into his stomach, killing himself. Upon news of Antony's death, Cleopatra is extremely distraught, and she knows now that it's only a matter of time before Octavian's forces come. And they do, and they try to bargain with her, because she's pretty well defended in that palace, but she doesn't budge until eventually it's decided that she would take her own life. And this is a subject that has actually been debated in recent years as to whether or not Cleopatra died in such a fashion. Did she kill herself? Was she killed by Octavian? I think if Octavian had got her hands on her, it would have been a much bigger spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm pretty confident that she died by her own means. How? I don't think it was asps. For one, <laughs> there weren't any in Egypt. So if it was going to be a snake, it had to have been a cobra. Have you ever been bit by a cobra? No, but I know the venom works very quickly. Yeah. I haven't either. I can't imagine, even if I had the inclination to kill myself, that I would have the guts to take a cobra and let it bite me. I'm pretty sure she didn't do it. I wouldn't be surprised if she used one of the many available poisons, like arsenic, for example, which was readily available to her, to kill herself. Cyanide, pretty much. Yeah. Though there is something very poetic about letting a snake do you in. Sure, which is why, you know, Shakespeare used it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And of course, a snake is metaphorical for so many things. It has a very Christian connotation. So having it be the force that subdues Cleopatra fits. Yeah. Yeah. But yet by Octavian killing the other consul, that leaves only one consul. Exactly. For all of the Rome. And with that, you now have him declaring his intention to rule but not his intention to be an emperor. He made this very clear to the Roman Senate. He did not want to be considered a dictator. He did not want to be considered an emperor. He simply wanted to be a council, but one that was more or less permanent. But it would be the power of the Senate that would remain within the Senate. And it was an extremely clever move because he realized how poorly things had gone for Julius Caesar, but he realized that with this power, he would be able to control Rome completely. And if he took a more modest approach to it, he could get the backing of the Senate. Because many of those pro-Republican Senate were now dead. Republicans with small R's, not big yes, R's. small R's, not big R's. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have John Bonar. Because they were talking to... about gun rights, gun rights, gun rights. What's with these guns you speak of? <laughs> oh, wait, sorry, too early. Goodbye. <laughs> provincial rights. Provincial, provincial rights. rights. Yeah. <laughs> versus, versus national rights. <laughs> But what you have now is the situation where he's put himself in this interesting position because now the Roman Senate are so inclined to throw power on him that they're insisting that he take on certain titles. And that's where the title of Augustus comes from. Because Augustus literally means greater up or higher up. It was not the name he was born with. The name he was born with was Octavian. And so he now assumes this title and it becomes the replacement for his prenome and his birth name. And it becomes Augustus and he becomes Augustus Caesar. And this is now where Caesar has been adopted as this, again, title. Uh, and he deifies Julius Caesar upon the uh, the viewing of Halley's Comet over Rome. Uh, he says that this is the soul of Julius Caesar ascending into heaven, uh, and that, you know, I am his defender. And I am the one who have escalated him to this place, and I shall defend the kingdom that uh, he now rules over from heaven. Yeah. And he becomes godlike, and this iconic representation to the people of Rome. Yeah, so much so that they add, they add a month to the calendar in Absolutely. his honor. Absolutely. And July comes from Julius's... And, of course, August comes from Augustus. Augustus. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this is pretty incredible. Now we have this, this ruler in Rome who is 
playing this clever game of politics with the Roman Senate, but is ruling absolutely. And Rome now enters a period that its classical scholars would call its golden age. This was a period of Pax Romana, peace in Rome. And it would continue with the succession of many different Roman emperors, who for the next 200 years would build a foundation that would last for centuries to come. One that, like we've stated earlier, has this incredible influence over the world today. You know, just to list off the first rulers within that first hundred years, just by name only. After, of course, you have Octavian, you have Tiberius, you have Caligula, you have Claudius, you have Nero. These are names that are echoing through history. That Even if you don't really know a lot of details about who these individuals were, you know those names. You understand them, you hear them. Unfortunately, we've run out of time to go over them. We have indeed. But you know what, folks? We're going to do a part two for this. I think we have to. We have to. <laughs> I think if we don't, we'll be a riot. No, we did two parts for Egypt. We need to do two parts for Rome. Yeah, it's only fair. It really is only fair. Yeah, absolutely. But you know what, folks? We need to take a, a small break from this because we really have a special episode next week. And we, we, we don't want to go into too much detail yet because we really want to keep it a surprise. Oh, but, but it is a pretty incredible surprise. Yeah, it's going to be so, so good when it's done. Yeah. So. so much like we did with Egypt, we'll take a little bit of a break in between. Then we'll come back with part two of Rome. And we'll give you a little time to digest everything that we've talked about today, because we talked about a lot of stuff. But like we always say, don't take our word for it. There's so much information out there. There's tons that have been written on Rome, and there's so much from Rome. Even some of Rome's emperors were quite uh, prolific scholars, and they've passed down a lot of information to us from history. And so sometimes it's good to just take it from the words of the people who were there, even though many times you have to take it with a grain of salt. Go ahead and I encourage you to read some of those uh, writings from Rome, because again, many of them are the foundation of uh, the society that we have today. Yeah, and if anything, even though it's hard to look at the other factors because not much is remaining, it gives you a mindset of what people thought, right? You can kind of tell if there's such figurative language being said, that, okay, so clearly they were glorifying somebody, but it wasn't always necessarily 100% truth, that you get to learn what people were thinking. And that's really what history is about, is understanding the story of the people who are involved right. in this, you know, Absolutely. understanding the characters, so, so to speak in the story. We don't really need to point you in any direction. There's tons of resources out there on uh, the Roman Empire that you can look up. Some, some great stuff out there. There's been lots of great television and film that have varying levels of historical accuracy on it, but, you know, nevertheless, they get little pieces of it. Yeah, there's a lot out there. Tons and tons out there. Tons of material. Um, so we'll be back with Rome again. We'll cover the rest of the foundation of the Roman Empire, right? We'll go into Roman Empire proper. And then we'll talk a little bit about maybe some of the great technological achievements of Rome as well. And what, what, of course, the influence of Christianity as well. Because you can't talk about Rome without talking about Christianity's legitimacy yeah. coming into play. Absolutely. Indeed. So, folks, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Nerdonomy. And you can check us out on our Facebook page, Nerds on History. Please do. Like us. Share us. Let the people know that we exist. And tell your friends, please. Share yeah. the love. Absolutely. Because, you know, we've got a great thing going here. We plan to be around for a long time to come. And we love, love, love the response that we've gotten from our listeners. So if you like us, share us. Go ahead and uh, give us a review in iTunes because that just helps us get further and further up in those uh, leaderboards and help us get more recognized. And, um, Give us some feedback. Yeah, exactly. Give us some feedback. You can give us feedback through actually nerdonomy.com, our webpage. There's a feedback button you can click on, and it will email us with your comments. If you want to give us praise, if you have ideas for how to make the show better, or even an episode you'd like to hear. Or if we got anything wrong, because, you know, Rome is not my specialty. My specialty is, of course, ancient Egypt, although I am quite fond of everything in the ancient world. Give us a shout out. Yeah, I mean, we are not experts. We are just enthusiasts. So please. Well, I'm an expert. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You actually are an expert. No, I would consider you. I'm just an enthusiast, so. I'm not an expert. Please. I'm just just Caesar. Oh, yeah. I'm just Imperator. Anyway, See, there's guys, only one of you, though. I could survive that stabbing. I'd have to run around and stab you in different times in different places to, to really yeah. get the full effect. Let, let, let's, let's not do that. No, let's not do that. Um, folks, please have a wonderful week, and tune in next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Thank you, Brian. Much appreciated for your company, as always, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.